The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to tonight's virtual Commonwealth Club program. Obviously, we wish we could be with you in person, but I am thrilled to be with you tonight. My name is Erin Haynes. I'm editor-at-large for The 19th uh, and also a founding mother. Uh, The 19th is a nonprofit independent newsroom that is focused on the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. As the club continues to host virtual events, uh, they are also grateful for the continued support of their members and donors. You can visit commonwealthclub.org to learn more about membership, or you can support the club right now with a tax-deductible gift by clicking the blue donate button that's on your screen. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Adam Serwer, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of The Cruelty is the Point, The Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America. Adam is an award-winning journalist, and his new book chronicles the Trump administration, exploring a number of issues, including white nationalism and the devastating impact that fear and exclusion has had on our democracy. So as uh, just a reminder, we're going to take your questions. So please, please, please submit those in the chat. Uh, And with that, Adam, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, doing this, Aaron. You are very, very welcome. Uh, I want to get right into our conversation. and, And I think Probably a good place to start is is something that you and I have talked about a lot. Uh, for those of you uh, tuning in, I will tell you that Adam and I are friends, and we have talked a lot about uh, the cruelty is the point, and and a lot of the work that uh, ended up in this book kind of along the way. And and you were, uh, I was surprised to learn reading this book that you were among the political press that that was kind of initially skeptical about um, President Trump's chances. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the moment that you realized or that you became convinced that that uh, Donald Trump could actually become president of the United States? Um, so I'm not sure that there was a particular moment where um, I, I, I became convinced. I, I always under, I, I mean, I understood it as a, as a possibility, certainly when he started winning um, the actual formal nominations contest. Uh, that was a, a line that was crossed that was distinct from, you know, what had until that point been... I think some people had treated it like it was sort of a sideshow to the actual election or that he was going to implode, which was a pattern that would repeat itself, obviously, throughout the administration, this belief that um, Donald Trump had finally crossed the line that would, um, you know, divest him from his supporters. Um, And that, uh, but even though I, I wasn't sure that he was really going to win and, you know, the polling suggested that he would not, um, even until the end, although he, you know, it, it's his chances were better than um, people, most people acknowledged at the time. Um, it was clear to me that he was manipulating some of the most treacherous forces in America, in American history. Um, and he was doing so without regard for the damage that that might cause. Um, and that to me was already interesting because it said that there was political strength in wielding those forces 
um, against some of the most vulnerable people in the country. Um, and that, you know, that was going to have an impact no matter what. So I immediately began um, sort of reading about the history of American nativism, American immigration politics, um, you know, in particular, the history of Reconstruction, which I think is really um, uh, a sort of uh, seminal struggle in American history. Just it's the first time that America attempts to become a full uh, multiracial democracy and it fails. And the reasons why it fails are also the reasons why it's failed um, ever since or why it's, why it's struggled ever since uh, to meet those ideals. Um, so even though I was never, you know, certain, you know, I, I wasn't one of those people who had sort of, you know, a certainty that he would win. Um, enough people that I knew um, who were astute observers of American politics did think he would win or did think he had a chance, as I write in the book. Um, and so that, that, that was enough for me to take it seriously from the beginning. Yeah. And, and I think too, I mean, you and I are journalists that, that, uh, believe in the value of history as, uh, you know, the foundation, the context for, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, the work that, that we do. And so you realized that as part of your reporting kind of along the way, uh, to covering that campaign, to covering this administration was, really a robust and working knowledge of the history of this country, of the history of American politics. Talk about um, whether that was something that you had an appreciation for even before you came to this, you know, to covering and, and, and writing about this administration. And if that's something that you feel like you have come to rely on even more in the past uh, five years, I guess I would say. So I, I would say that, um, the sort of style that uh, I have brought to uh, my work began really in Ferguson. Um, and I think a lot of this reevaluation of American history begins in Ferguson because Ferguson, I think, is a seminal moment in the Obama administration when a lot of Americans really begin asking themselves, how is it that American life is still so defined by race uh, when we have a black president? Um, how, how could this paradox exist? And so people start looking back at history to try and um, understand, you know, things like the the, the, the massacre in Charleston, uh, the rise of Donald Trump sort of accelerated this process. Um, but I think, you know, uh, even earlier than that, when I was working at Mother Jones, uh, my editor there, David Korn, he said to me, you know, the news is what people have forgotten. It's not just what people uh, don't know yet. Uh, and I think that's important because, um, you know, in journalism, there's an, there's an obvious ideological reason to uh, privilege new knowledge over uh, past knowledge. Um, but sometimes readers don't have the full context for why something is happening. And sometimes reporters, especially if you're on a beat, you've been covering something for a long time, you can, uh, you can um, miss, uh, you can have contextual information that you don't think you need to communicate to a reader that in fact would illuminate the issue for them greatly. Um, and so for me, uh, you know, this sort of looking into history to find the origin of struggles that we're dealing with in the present day um, has been my way of illuminating for readers something um, that they might not quite understand, um, in part because the, of the uh, nature of journalism itself, which is very forward looking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in contrast to, uh, you know, our society, our democracy, which tends to be cyclical. Right. And so uh, that's that's a really good point that you're making. I, I have to 
uh, for, for folks who are tuning in here, I have to read the section because I thought that that stood out to me. Uh, the, the, the quote that you mentioned from uh, from David Korn, our friend. Um, so I'll just read this a, a little passage from this, if you will indulge me for a second. Reporters are often taught that journalism is the first draft of history, but American journalism is afflicted by a presentism, a kind of goldfish memory that struggles to think outside the present or recent past. That makes a certain amount of sense. The old chestnut is that the news is what is new. But an old editor of mine, David Korn of Mother Jones, used to say that the news is also what people have forgotten. The reactions to Trump, whether the enthusiasm or apprehension on the right or the disbelief on the left, showed that Americans had forgotten quite a bit. And I have spent the last five years trying to help people remember. So yeah, we talk about um, kind of how journalism is forward looking. What is it that the American people forgot? Uh, in the 2016 election, and maybe even uh, you know, uh, you know, 70 million people uh, forgot again in 2020. I think that uh, there is a kind of um, you know, I refer to this in the book as um, accidents of liberal optimism and conservative sentimentality, and and by that I simply mean, um, you know, when Barack Obama says the arc of history bends towards justice, that's a very compelling image, but it's not really how history works in practice. Uh, a lot of times it's one step forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back. Um, and, you know, um, when you look at someone like Donald Trump, he is operating from a very idealized version of history. You know, when, when he says make America great again, that raises a question of what, when was America great and what period are you talking about? Um, and so, right, and for whom? Um, and when you see things like the 1776 Project, which was, you know, over like, an official state history as retort to the New York Times 1619 project. That is not about uh, exploring history. That is about putting forth an official historical narrative uh, that sentimentalizes these aspects of American history that uh, conservatives would rather marginalize or not see for what they are. Um, and I think, you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, the sort of liberal, traditional liberal narrative for political reasons emphasizes American progress. Um, and sometimes uh, that narrative is not as neat as presented um, because politically it does not make sense to talk about uh, the warts in that narrative uh, or the way in, in which it might not be accurate. Um, and so, you know, and I understand that politicians, you know, their job is to get elected. It's not to tell the truth. That's our job. Um, so, you know, when they say things that aren't true, it's our job to point out the ways in which they are not true. Um, and, and for me, you know, the, the, there's, there's two sides of this American story about us always moving forward, which is, you know, one denies, um, one assumes that we are constantly moving forward and the other denies that we had anything to overcome at all. Um, and, and I think that both of those really do a disservice, uh, to Americans understanding their own country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you talk in the book about, um, uh, those who lack the knowledge to separate history from sentiment. I mean, I'm based in Philadelphia where probably our most powerful and potent origin stories, uh, you know, are, can be found, uh, you know, about, you know, from our founding documents to the founding fathers, you name it. Um, you know, and these, these are, um, you know, there, there certainly is truth in those, but, but uh, a truth that people would rather 
gravitate to as opposed to the, exactly some of those realities that that uh, you point out that are you know uncomfortable uh, for some folks at at, at the very least uh, and and you know and and wanting to kind of relegate those more uncomfortable ugly parts of our our country to uh, past behavior as opposed to um, you know a legacy that is living and breathing and still very much with us and and very much impacting uh, many people many millions of people in this country. Um, I, I want to, and I think there's a reason for that. I mean, I think. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, you know, these this, this conversation about the past has political salience. I mean, I, I don't think it's coincidence that you're looking in some in some of these states, conservative legislatures trying to restrict the teaching of certain aspects of American history having to do with race. Because if you um, if you look at American history and you, you determine that uh, present day racial disparities are in large part the um, product of American public policy uh, that, you know, it, it doesn't inherently, but it makes a strong case for state intervention to rectify those disparities. Um, and if you don't want the state to intervene, then you, you want to find some way of arguing that uh, those disparities are the result of inherent differences in talent or ability or culture or having, or having nothing to do with um, uh, actions of the state that must be rectified. Um, and to, to a large extent, I think that is what this argument over history that we're having is really about. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And and I feel like that that should have been one of the lessons that we have learned in the past four years. And yet, um, you know, the way that, uh, frankly, I think a lot of the coverage um, is is happening does not necessarily reflect that we have, have learned that lesson. I mean, I, I think... Um, you know, one of the things that I'd love to ask uh, political journalists that I know, and I will ask it to you now, is either why do you think that Trump lost? I mean, Trump won in 2016, or why do you think that Hillary lost? And uh, you know, one of the answers that people love to give, uh, you mentioned in the book, economic anxiety, right, was was uh, the reason that that Trump was elected in in 2016. Uh, but um, you know, if if people do not give answers that have something to do with either race or gender, like within their first three answers, I'm always skeptical about whether they actually understand the dynamics of this country, the dynamics of that election, the dynamics of this past election. I think it's really important to distinguish between a legitimate grievance and a legitimate means of addressing that grievance. Um, so, you know, the, the Obama stimulus was too small. Uh, we know that now. Um, they, the Obama administration did not do a good job of keeping people in their homes. Um, a substantial amount, uh, particularly of Black and Latino wealth, was wiped out as a result of the housing crisis. Um, but a lot of white people were hurt, too. Um, but the distinction is that uh, the overwhelming majority of those Black and Latino voters were uh, imp negatively impacted by the recession and the Obama administration's uh, failure to address it more aggressively um, did not. They, they were largely immune to Trump's appeals. Um, and so we have to ask the question about, you know, it's not simply enough to say economic hardship makes you react a certain way. Uh, what makes you react a certain way is the ideological lens through which you experience um, your personal hardship. Um, and that, you know, it, it's not simply enough to say, uh, you know, if you have mis if you if you experience some misfortune, you you are automatically, you know, the, the, the you're automatically going to find appealing a candidate who advertises his willingness to use state violence against uh, uh, religious and ethnic minorities in the United States, you're automatically going to find that appealing. Um, that there's really, a, there's a, there's a missing step there. 
um, that for, you know, for a lot of reasons, commercial, ideological, uh, social, uh, you know, I, I think in 2016, a lot of reporters were loath to admit, but I think Trump over the past, you know, four years of his administration, uh, made it very difficult to avoid the conclusions that most of us are, you know, many of us had drawn in 2015. Yeah. Um, and a lot of what you were able to uh, glean, what got you to kind of, uh, you know, the reality that that, um, that Donald Trump was going to become president was some of what you saw on the campaign trail, right? And you talk so much in the book about uh, not just the president, but his supporters, right? Um, so I'm wondering if you uh, will indulge us here and, and uh, read a little bit from uh, the book. I'm thinking about page 42. I think that this, this sets us up for the next part of our conversation. Okay. Even before Trump won, the United States was consumed by a debate over the nature of his appeal. Was racism the driving force behind Trump's candidacy? If so, how could Americans, the vast majority of whom said they opposed racism, back a racist candidate? During the final few weeks of the campaign, I asked dozens of Trump supporters about their candidates' remarks regarding Muslims and people of color. I wanted to understand how these average Republicans those who would never read the neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, or go to a Klan rally at a Confederate statue, had nevertheless embraced someone who demonized religious and ethnic minorities. What I found was that Trump embodied his supporters' most profound beliefs, combining an insistence that discriminatory policies were necessary with vehement denials that his policies would discriminate and absolute outrage that the question would even be asked. It was not just Trump supporters who were in denial about what they were voting for, but Americans across the political spectrum who, as had been the case with those who backed Duke, were searching desperately for any alternative explanation, outsourcing anti-Washington anger, economic anxiety to the ones staring them in the face. The frequent post-election media expeditions to Trump country to see whether the fever is broken or whether Trump's most ardent supporters have changed their minds are a direct outgrowth of this mistake. These supporters will not change their minds because this is what they always wanted. A president who embodies the rage that they feel towards those they hate and fear while reassuring them that that rage is nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, and I think that that's exactly it. I mean, I think that, um, you know, because President Trump was somebody who was a public figure for so long before he was president, we knew who he was. I think that. um you know, the surprise to too many political journalists was kind of who the American electorate was. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, what what is it that we missed? What is it that we are still missing about that electorate? And why does that matter? Um, I think, you know, it's complicated because I feel like this is a, this is a, Trump's constituency is ideally uh, geographically distributed um, to maximize his support in both the Senate and the Electoral College um, and the structure of that system which allows one party to hold power without winning a majority of the votes. Trump came within a hair's breadth of winning re-election, um, despite winning many mi millions fewer votes than Joe Biden. Um, and he won in 2016, um, you know, despite ha having fewer votes than Hillary Clinton. He, Donald, a majority of Americans rejected Donald Trump in three straight elections. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in, in 2018, Democrats took the House, but they did not take the Senate. They uh, took the Senate and the White House in 2020, but they came, you know, very close to not doing that. Um, and so, you know, w when you have a base that is distributed that way, it becomes more urgent to persuade that base that they're on the verge of destruction. And so anything they do to prevent that destruction is justified. 
And so that's how you end up with this sort of apocalyptic rhetoric that has become a staple of uh, Trump rallies where he's sort of basically like the liberals want to destroy everything you love. Joe, Joe Biden is going to kill God, you know, to, to you know, Cory Booker is going to um, go after the housewives in the suburbs. I mean, that, you know, that I mean, you really can't get much more explicit than that. Um, you know, um, th- this kind of rhetoric is there to say, you know, maybe I'm not the person, the ideal person you would vote for, you know, cause I'm on my third marriage and I have a lot of kids or whatever, but, uh, I'm, and I'm vulgar, uh, but I'm the one who's standing between you and the end of your world as you, as you know it. Um, and even though that's not true, it's a very potent and effective political pitch. And one of the things that kind of political pitch does is it makes his own cruelty seem heroic because he is merely acting in defense of traditional Americans as they understand themselves to be, um, uh, who, and defending their inheritance of the country, uh, from people who, uh, you know, do not deserve to be in charge or do not deserve to hold power because they're not truly American to begin with. Right. Um, and, and, that that was an effective strategy at least for four years right um is enough to convince uh others that this is uh a strategy to emulate uh you know we're seeing folks uh you know lower down the ticket that that feel like this is a passive success obviously the president still hold a former president still holds an outsized influence over um you know republican politics in this moment and so um you know i'm wondering um you know I know we're only six months into a Biden-Harris administration, but, you know, a lot of folks are asking kind of about whether um, the lasting influence of Trumpism, if, if you know, voters were sure a majority of voters ended up rejecting this, but there were, you know, it was it was a slim majority that rejected it. And so, um, yeah, I mean, is this. Well, it was it was slim in the Electoral College, but it was a fairly large popular vote margin. I mean. You know, to answer your question, I think, um, you know, Trump uh, highlighted the role of cruelty in American politics, but it's a false sense of comfort to think that that's all behind us and a misinterpretation to think it started with him. Um, it neither started nor ended with him is something that goes back to the founding of the country. If you're going to say that all men are created equal, you have to find justifications for why the people you own as chattel do not count. Uh, do, and that uh, uh, that they do not have inalienable rights um, that the same the same inalienable rights that you do. Um, so this politics is very old. It's not just you know, it, it, it's not just about the Republican Party or about conservatism. It's something that is a part of you know, unfortunately embedded in the history of American politics. Um, but Trump mostly sh- showed the Republican Party what they could get away with, and now that they know they can get away with it, I mean, as I said in two thousand twenty. Um, you know, they lost, but they lost by much less than they thought they were going to lose by in a situation where, you know, a lot of people were predicting something like a landslide for Joe Biden. Um, and when that didn't happen, what it said was, you know, this Trumpism thing can work. It might even work better without him. Um, because what it's really about, as I said, is, is, is maximizing, um, Republican electoral potential within the counter majoritarian levers of American democracy. Um, and so as long as that pays off, until they pay a significant political price for it, the Republican Party is going to continue on the same path. Um, and they're going to keep doing things like attempt to restrict the electorate um, from the participation of Democratic constituencies um, so that they can hold power without having to worry about what those people think. 
Yeah, that was exactly where I was driving next. So thank you for uh, <laughs> that segue. Because, yeah, I mean, so, so you mentioned, you know, politicians are, uh, you know, here to get elected. They're not here to tell us the truth. Um, and obviously, we are still living with the big lie, even though it did not work for President Trump in terms of getting him a second term. Um, it continues to be very effective uh, in our politics, especially, you know, at the state level what, with what we're seeing uh, in these state legislatures wanting to address the threat of election integrity, which we know is not real and not a threat. Um, and so uh, you talk in the book about um, Trump's understanding of the rigged system and how that is different from our mm-hmm. understanding of what the rigged system is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I guess, you know, for people, you know, people who are, are working on behalf of, of voting rights, you know, frame this as, as existential, you know, as, as a threat to our democracy and everything else that comes along with it. But I mean, um, I wonder if you agree, I mean, that, that the big lie that this idea of the rig system is dangerous um, and, and mm-hmm. also kind of what the stakes are of, of misinformation. I mean, yes, people are literally dying over misinformation of vaccines, but um, yeah, mis- misinformation is, 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 is literally an it existential is. issue. So, so I think there's two things that, um, you know, I, I try to distinguish in the book between the rig system that Bernie Sanders talks about, which is, from his view, an economic system that redistributes income upwards and denies the great mass of the American people um, the, uh, the ability to uh, participate or have access to American economic prosperity, which is instead hoarded by the people who are in the top one to 30 percent of the income bracket. That is distinct from Donald Trump's version of a rigged system, which is one in which the unworthy um, are elevated over the worthy. Um, and you can tell who Donald Trump thinks is unworthy because uh, he talks about them all the time and, and how scared they are and how they're destroying everything he, you, you and he love about America. Um, but I, th- I think, you know, when, when you look back at when you look at these law, it's not clear to me that these laws will be successful. It's clear that they are intended to restrict the participation of Democratic constituencies. Um, in politics so that uh, Republicans can be insulated from, um, you know, doing things that they don't like. Uh, So if you're a politician and you only have to worry about the most conservative segment of the electorate, it doesn't really matter how much liberals are howling about, um, you know, what you're doing if you have them packed into districts where they can't elect another representative or, you know, you're in a rural state uh, where uh, no matter what you do, you're going to get reelected. and so, uh, you know, it, it, I think we have to remember that American, you know, American unfreedom always presents itself as a defense of democracy. The Confederacy presented itself as preserving the original Constitution as, as understood by the founders. The Democratic redeemers who overthrew the Reconstruction governments saw themselves as purifying the ballot, as uh, protecting American democracy from the illegitimate participation of black men. Um, And I think you can hear something similar in this rhetoric now when they talk about, uh, you know, in some cases in the more Trumpy corners of the Internet um, and in conservative intellectual world, they talk about people who are not really American Um, in parts of the less Trumpy Internet. You can talk you you can hear them talk about how uh, it's good to restrict the electorate because the ignorant shouldn't be participating anyway. Um, And that's a, a, a little more of a dog whistle, but we still know what that means. Um, and then there's Trump who says things like, uh, you know, Philadelphia and Detroit should not be allowed to decide a presidential election. And that is 100 percent clear, uh, despite the fact that Trump did better in Detroit and Philadelphia 
in 2020 than 2016. He, him and his base consider those places, the political power, the black political power that emanates from those spaces as fundamentally illegitimate and see its restriction, not as um, marring democracy as most voting rights advocates do because it, uh, you know, it attacks political equality, uh, but defending democracy because certain people, uh, you know, because the country belongs to Trump's base legitimately and, uh, you know, anything other than uh, their political victory is a usurpation. Um, and so, you know, th th that's a very dangerous place to be. And fundamentally, when we look at American history, the only way that parties change is if they are forced to, uh, their means of power changes. So you look at an organization like the Democratic Party, which was, you know, in the 1930s, the most powerful white supremacist organization in American life. Um, because of the entry of black voters, because of this coalition of black voters, labor unions, urban liberals, they fundamentally changed this party that had been presiding over a Jim Crow state in the American South, uh, in which black people were not allowed to participate into a party of civil rights. So what that says to me is that uh, as long as the Republican Party does not have to reach outside of its constituency to hold power, uh, it will continue on this path. Um, and, and that and, and changing those incentives really requires altering the system so that it's more equal. So that means admitting new states. It means maybe multi-member districts. It means protecting voting rights at the federal level so that states cannot pick and choose their electorates so that they are no longer responsive to the people. I mean, that's a, the, the fundamental function of democracy is to have a representative democracy is that representatives care about what their constituents think. Um, and so they act in their interest. Now, when you when politicians no longer have to worry about what their constituents think, they no longer have to respect their rights or their desires. And that's short circuits the entire feedback process that is necessary for democracy to function. Um, so I think we're in a dangerous place. I don't know that it's necessarily true that the Republican um, uh, devices will work in part because, um, you know, coalitions change, politics change. It's hard to know what the future is going to be. But I think there should be no doubt about the intent of these laws, uh, which is to insulate the Republican Party um, from from the majority. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and a reminder, you know, uh, Donald Trump was telling the big lie in 2016. It just so happened that he won. He was raising the same specter of a rigged election of voter fraud in urban centers and, and uh, you know, but but things worked out for him. He said undocumented immigrants have been bussed in. Millions of undocumented immigrants have been bussed in to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, there was no evidence for it, produced no evidence for it. It was a complete lie. Yeah. And was um, suggesting and that, that folks show up at the polling places and places like Philadelphia, um, you know, his supporters uh, show up to protect, uh, you know, the polls. Um, but what but what's important about this is that it's not it's a symbolic belief. What he's really is it's like birtherism. What he's really saying is these people even if they have more votes, their votes are illegitimate. They shouldn't count. And so, you know, it, it doesn't matter if they got more votes because the votes that I got are real votes and the votes that they got are lesser votes. Um, they're illegitimate votes. They're the votes of people who aren't really truly American. And therefore, despite having fewer votes, I am more legitimate because I am an avatar of the real Americans. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you to read one more thing before I ask you one more question, and then we go to uh, the questions that our audience has, and you all have a lot of really good ones. Um, if you could turn to page 35 
and start with, um, well, I guess maybe if you want to, if you just want to explain to people, um, you know, you were reading uh, Black Reconstruction by W.B. Du Bois, and you come to this quote mm. that I want you uh, to uh, to read, uh, and then uh, the quote that comes, af- I mean, the paragraph that comes after that. So you want me to read from the Du Bois quote at the bottom? Mm-hmm. In his note to the reader at the introduction of Black Reconstruction, Du Bois writes, If he believes that the Negro in America, and in general, is an average and ordinary human being who, under given environment, develops like other human beings, then he will read this story and judge it by the facts adduced. If, however, he regards the Negro as a distinctly inferior creation who can never successfully take part in modern civilization and whose emancipation and enfranchisement were gestures against nature, then he will need something more than the sort of facts that I have set down. But this latter person, I am not trying to convince. This was an inspiration in a dark moment. I did not set out to write this essay attempting to convince anyone of my point of view. I was simply laying down the facts as I saw them and attempting to get at the truth as best I could, so that in a different time and place, one less deferential to Trump and Trumpism, someone would be able to access the truth. Yeah. Um and I think uh, a lot of journalists, especially journalists of color, that, that kind of was where they ended up in, uh, you know, at the end of, of, of the Trump era, really recognizing that, um, you know, it, the importance of leaving behind an, an honest and accurate record, record. Of, of this moment, especially when, um, you know, you saw uh, just a complete lack of prioritization of facts um, and, and just outright lies kind of just dominating uh, the landscape. We've been here before in many ways, as you write, he, you know, the president, former president did exactly what he said that he would. Um, and there were a lot of people who just were not listening, whether that was journalists or. Uh, I think it was, I think for some people, um, you know, there was a kind of double delusion where it was like, there were some people who, were unwilling to believe that their fellow citizens were capable of supporting a man like this. Um, and there were people who did not believe that Trump was the man that he was. They invented a kind of alternative Trump um, that they could cheer for and believe in. Um, and so, you know, bo- both of those groups of people could not really see him clearly. Uh, but to be honest, I feel like my depiction of Trump is uh you know, I don't feel like there's a lot of daylight between what I think Trump believes and what Trump believes he believes. Uh, I think that for the most part, the discrepancy comes when the people who defend Trump want to say that he doesn't think and say and do the things he says and thinks and does um, because of what that how that would reflect on them. But I don't think that there's a lot of daylight in between what I think Donald Trump believes and what Donald Trump you know, even says that he believes. Okay, well, that makes me want to ask one more then. And that is if you could sit down and ask former President Trump anything, you get to go down to Mar-a-Lago and ask whatever you want about this presidency, about what he feels like his legacy is, what, whatever. What, what, what do you think you would ask? What would you want to know from him? Uh, you know, I, I don't have anything to ask Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump is not a particularly interesting person. And I think that this book is not really about Trump because, um, you know, his appetites his vanities, um, his impulses are actually quite shallow. And one of the, the frustrations of the past four years, I think, is that um, it was hard for people to write the same stories over and over about Trump because he's not that deep. 
Um, uh, there's a, there's a piece, uh, uh, you know, that the Atlantic published, um, uh, you know, sort of towards the end of the Trump administration about this. There isn't really that much to say about Trump. There's a lot of like sort of weird Kremlinology that was done sort of trying to get inside Trump's head about what, you know, what he thinks, what he's doing, you know, is he eating burgers at night, uh, drinking Diet Coke, watching cable TV, enraged. Um, and I think he's actually just not that interesting. I think the more interesting question is why did the country choose this man and what is it going to do now that he's gone? And that is what the book is preoccupied with. Um, it's not preoccupied with fi- with figuring out uh, you know, what Trump believes or thinks, because he has been very open about those things for people who want to hear them. Um, and I don't think that there's anything in particular um, more to glean from him in terms of, you know, he is pretty upfront. Um, he's telling you what his values are every day. Um, and I think, you know, people who want to say, uh, well, what is Donald Trump thinking? It's a mystery. Um, simply do not want to accept what, what he has put forth for them. Yeah. Well, my friend, I think you may be one of the few journalists who currently has a book uh, about this presidency that uh, did not uh, either seek to or, or end up uh, engaging with uh, him and to, to get uh, his thoughts and to try to figure out uh, what he was doing. So kudos to you for centering uh, this electorate and, and our friends, family, neighbors, and, and the people that, that we uh, live, work, and and love alongside every single day to figure out what's going on with them and what's going on with this country. So uh, with that, uh, we have got a lot of questions from readers. Uh, people want to know uh, many things about uh, your thoughts on where we go from here. So um, I will start with... Um, what will it take to reshape the thought process of the current Republican Party? So kind of to your point about the electorate and where we go from here. Um, you know, I think that that is a very complicated question. And I think to some extent, it's not really something liberals can do or Democrats can do. The identity of the Republican Party is a Republican and conservative project. Um, and I think, uh, you know, all, all the Democratic Party can do is provide competition and extract a political price for a certain kind of politics. Uh, but what the Republican Party becomes is up to Republicans. Um, and now perhaps, you know, uh, Donald Trump's success along the Rio Grande Valley and in South Florida, you know, maybe that increased diversity takes the Republican Party in a different direction because they now have a more diverse constituency. Or maybe that a more diverse constituency becomes more accepting of the principles of the Trumpian Republican Party. Um, You know, I I, I don't know the answer to those questions. All I can say really is that um, this is something that, you know, liberals cannot force an identity crisis inside the Republican Party. It's something, you know, political identity formation is something that is sort of a process internal um, to their coalition. But I do know that as long as the Republican Party can hold power, even with a minority of the vote, by engaging in this kind of Trumpian identity politics, they're going to keep doing that because that's just how politicians work. It's not a question of, you know, necessarily right or wrong. It is a rational political choice. And unfortunately, it's one that's very dangerous for our democracy. Yeah. Uh, well, related to that, uh, it is po- is it possible that we learn that cruelty is multiracial? Uh, didn't Trump grow his share of black and Hispanic voters? What do you think of that? I mean, cruelty is a, is a human trait. Uh, you know, the book is focused on cruelty and politics, specifically how it's used to demonize certain groups 
um, and, and justify excluding them from the political process or uh, depriving them of their constitutional rights. But it's not something that's limited to conservatives or, uh, or Republicans or even white people. That, that, that's just not how human nature works. Um, you know, but, but I will say, you know, like I said, you, you look at 1932, Franklin Roosevelt wins the black vote in the North, stunning Republicans because they're asking themselves, how could you vote for the party of Jim Crow? And the answer is that, you know, the Republican Party had largely identified, had largely abandoned black voters after Reconstruction. And Roosevelt was at least offering an economic agenda uh, that would appeal to them. Um, and so, you know, that did not turn James Eastland into Martin Luther King Jr. Um, it did not change uh, what, what the, the nature of the Democratic Party, at least not at that moment. Ultimately, uh, those voters were able to wrest control of the party away from the Dixiecrats. Um, but, you know, the fact that Trump improved his margins among voters of color in 2020, that's important. It's a challenge, political challenge for the Democratic Party. Uh, but it doesn't change what Trump stands for, what he said or what he did. Okay, we've got uh, somebody who wants you to handicap things here. What probability would you give to a major crisis in the Republican Party by the midterms and chastising Trump for good? I, 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 I don't. Um, if, if you want political strategy or political prognostication, I am the wrong person to ask. I can look at history and I can tell you, you know, what happened in the past when we encountered certain situations how, you know, I can use uh, the map that historians have drawn for us to locate, um, you know, where we are. But I cannot, um, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not capable of predicting the outcomes of elections. And I'm, you know, I, I wouldn't even begin to try. What I will say is that typically the president's party loses seats in the midterms. Um, there are a few exceptions to this. George Bush after 9-11, um, Bill Clinton, uh, in, in his second term a after the impeachment, backfired on Republicans, at least in the midterm, but obviously not in the subsequent presidential election when uh, Clinton's successor was defeated. Um, so, you know, typically, uh, you know, voters turn against the president's party in the midterms. And the Democrats have very th thin margins in both chambers, so it's conceivable they could lose both. Um, absent some very unusual events, um, I think you can assume that the Democrats are not going to have a great midterm. Um, and that's going to be a problem because Republicans will take from that uh, that they do not need to change course. Well, that was a valiant try, Adam. I, too, am out of the prediction business in uh, American politics. Uh, but uh, with that said, one more uh, kind of uh, related question. Somebody says, I've heard it will take 40 years for the U.S. to recover from Trumpism. Do you agree with that? Um, it's a weird, you know, I, I think that's a weird um, frame, because I think what you have to remember is that America has only been a, a true multiracial democracy since 1965 in the Voting Rights Act. Um, and so, you know, we're not recovering from Trumpism. We are in the midst of a struggle about what American democracy is going to be. Um, and that struggle predates Donald Trump. It, it was 2013 when John Roberts, uh, you know, struck down the Voting Rights Act because he decided racism was over and subsequently saw a, a, a wave of laws across the states, um, you know, justifying uh, uh, attempts to restrict the vote um, in the name of partisanship. Um, and, 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 be, and because the parties are racially polarized, you saw 
Republicans essentially targeting black voters with these voting restrictions. Um, so, you know, the question about whether we're going to recover from Trumpism, I think, is the wrong one because we're not, um, you know, Trump, Trump was a manifestation of these pre-existing political trends, but he was not the creator of them. Um, and so now that he's gone, you know, that those structural issues have not vanished. Um, and so I think, you know, the question is really, are we going to continue to be a multiracial democracy, um, you know, with true political equality, or are we going, we, are, are we departing that ideal into something else? Uh, we've got another one. Uh, you've argued that Trump supporters consider lots of people to be illegitimate as not real Americans. Is it plausible to believe that 70 plus million people who voted for him think that? Um, I actually think we need to distinguish between the marginal Trump voter, that is, you know, someone who might have voted for him despite um, having misgivings about him, and the kind of people who show up at Trump rallies um, and wear hats uh, and T-shirts with like obscenities um, or, or, or other kinds of things, the kind of people who really built their political identities around Donald Trump and the kind of people who, you know, pick someone every four years to vote for. I think those are two very distinct varieties of Trump supporter. Um, and when I talk and, and, you know, when you look at the polls, um, a, a significant number of Republicans, um, are bought in and a significant Repu number of Republicans have, you know, do accept the outcome of the election. Um, and I think, you know, when I'm talking about Republicans uh, seeing the Democratic vote and the Democratic constituencies as illegitimate, um, I think that they're, that is a majority of the Republican Party, but it is not everybody who voted for Donald Trump. Got uh, another question. How can pushing anti-vaccination misinformation be a winning strategy for Republicans? Um, I think we're in a very polarized environment. Um, and in that kind of environment, party identity, partisan identity becomes very significant. Uh, and people find ways to rationalize, even if you're a Republican who believes in vaccines, who supports vaccination, who is not bought in to these conspiracy theories. Um, you know, that doesn't mean you're going to become a Democrat. People have strongly held principles and their political identities are a big part of who they are. Um, and so, you know, maybe um, it's not a sound political strategy in terms of winning over converts. Um, but uh, in terms of will it cost the Republican Party tremendously politically, you know, maybe, but I, I don't see the evidence of that yet. What do you think that Speaker Pelosi should do regarding Kevin McCarthy's nominees to the January 6th commission? How does she keep them from continuing their story of the big lie? I think that the Democrats should not accept anybody on the commission who either encouraged the insurrection of January 6th or voted against certification afterwards. There's no reason to put anybody on the commission who, uh, you know, supports the belief of the rioters that the election should have been overturned um, and merely differs on the question of whether it should have been overturned by violence or simply Mike Pence using, abusing his ceremonial role to somehow determine who the president of the United States should be. That's not acceptable. I think you may get some uh, server 2022 uh, uh, write-in votes uh, for that one. Uh, do, do you see Trumpism growing as we enter the era of the climate refugees? Um, if, you're, if, by, if by Trumpism you mean nativism, uh, unfortunately, I think that's likely. Um, you know, it would be nice if 
what would happen if the public abandoned those people who 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 lied to them about the severity of the climate crisis when um the effects of the climate crisis become more and more visible in people's everyday lives but i think uh what's more likely is the same people who have exploited uh the false scarcity that we are currently living in um to demonize our groups that are not politically powerful enough to respond are probably going to pursue that strategy um you know, uh, it, because it, is, it has been a successful strategy, are going to pursue that strategy in earnest when it comes to the effects of climate change. Uh, another question. Somebody wants to know more about the future of Trump's America. They say, I'm terrified. Is there any reason to remain calm? Um, you know, uh, the answer here, you know, the book is about some pretty dark chapters in American history, uh, but it's also about the sacrifice and bravery of the people who lived through those eras. Um, and I'm inspired by that. There are people who sacrificed a great deal to make the world a better place for their children and grandchildren, which is one of the reasons why I, pers- I personally am here. Um, and so I don't feel like, um, you know, obviously uh, it, things can feel very um, dark and overwhelming at times. Um, but I feel like I, I owe it to the people who went through uh, much harsher conditions in order to make my life possible, um, not to uh, give in to despair. And I think that's one way to look at it. There are a lot of people who worked very hard um, to create a better world um, in situations that, uh, you know, and, and I can't speak to everybody, but in, in situations that were much worse than mine personally. Um, so I, I can't, it, they didn't give into that despair. So So I can't either. Yeah. Um, uh, Somebody is wanting to know if you have read the recent article by The Guardian describing Putin's massive and successful efforts to put Trump in the White House. You know, I think we should be very skeptical of um, purported intelligence documents that seem to confirm our worst suspicions about anything. Um, You know, I don't know the story uh, well enough to question it. Um, but I will say that I think people should be very skeptical of any story that seems to tell you everything um, you might want to believe. Um, so, you know, I think what we already know is bad enough. Uh, the Russian government tried very hard to interfere in the 2016 election on Trump's behalf, and Trump welcomed that help and deflected blame from the Russian government when um, asked. Um, I, I don't. I haven't seen any evidence that Donald Trump, you know, w- was, um, you know, acting at the behest of the, the the Russian government. I think the evidence so far suggests that he is a short-sighted opportunist uh, who will take help from anywhere uh, because he has no scruples. Um, but uh, you know, I'm, I, I would be very skeptical of anything purporting to show more than that. Um, you know, that hasn't been completely. Uh, you know, validated by people who are in a position to do so. Uh, related to that, um, as you recent foreign influence in American elections has been extremely well documented. Does Adam have a solution? I don't really have a solution. I mean, this is kind of, a, you know, this is kind of a political problem. Like foreign interference in American elections is already illegal. You can harden um, the election system against interference and, and the government should do that. Uh, but in terms of foreign propaganda, you know, that's a political and free speech problem that Americans are going to have to deal with on a political level themselves. 
you, you know, there's no way to protect people from hearing things uh, that are false. Um, we have, uh, you know, free speech in the country, in this country, we have a first amendment. And so, you know, you can't, I mean, you can sort of, you can make people register as foreign agents. You can do that kind of thing. Um, but on some level, the American people themselves have to make or have to be persuaded to make the right political decisions when confronted with foreign propaganda. It's not really a question that can be solved um, by the government. Uh, somebody else wants to know um, if you see a link to trends toward totalitarianism in other places in the world. Um, I think there's obviously a, a trend towards uh, right-wing nationalism in other parts of the world. I don't know how successful ultimately it's going to be. I think one of the uh, significant projects of the Biden administration should be uh, reviving hope in America and democracy in part by showing that it can be responsive to the needs of regular people. Um, totalitarianism is uh, different from mere authoritarianism. Um, and I, I don't think we see we actually see a trend towards that. I think there is a, a trend towards uh, democratic backsliding. Um, but totalitarianism is an extreme uh, form of authoritarian government um, that I, I think um, I, I do not see a trend in, towards that in particular. I think what we see is a kind of right-wing nationalism that is very dangerous, that is undemocratic. Um, but, but I would distinguish between those two things. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you one last one, and, and that is um, really just about um, where you wh where you are. Talk about where you are at the end of uh, the Trump presidency, not necessarily the Trump era, <laughs> the Trump presidency. Um, you know, these essays that you that you wrote, the reporting and, and the writing that you've done. Um, yeah, wh where where are you um, with um, what these past five, five plus years have meant, um, in terms of how you think I about think, the country, well, how you think about covering this going forward. I think in some ways I'm still covering the same story, which is, you know, who does America want to be? Um, but I also think, um, you know, the ultimate meaning of the Trump administration is really still being written how we view this chapter in history has not been determined yet. Um, and to some extent, uh, that determina I mean, that determination will be made by the American people and the political decisions that they make in the next few years. Um, the thing about public memory is that it's malleable. Um, so how we think of Trump now may not be how people think of Trump in five years. Um, and power has a way of manipulating public memory to justify itself. That was one of the fears I had in the in the beginning of the Trump administration was that that process was already beginning to take place. I mean, and you can see it in in some sense with um, you know things like the Capitol riot for people trying to you know um, call it uh, you know it called the people who were doing it tourists or trying to minimize the violence or the intent of the rioters themselves, um, which was to overturn their election by their own words. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, where I am is that it's hard to know what significance this chapter in American history will have. Um, I don't think we will know until a few years from now, um, um, that we're, we're still writing it. Uh, we're still writing the story. Um, you know, even though Trump is gone, um, his effect, his, his effect as a manifestation of these pre-existing political trends, uh, was tremendous. 
Um, and it has put us on a particular course that I don't think we know where it's leading. Um, and, and for that reason, you know, the story is ongoing. Yeah, well, I certainly feel like you have a clearer uh, eyed view uh, uh, at the end of this. Uh, and I wonder what uh, I wonder if you feel like uh, the political press in general is better equipped to cover this electorate going forward to, to understand kind of where we are and where we're going from here. I think if you look at, you know, the coverage, there was a tremendous improvement, I think, in terms of political coverage. Um, in many outlets towards the end of the Trump administration. But I think, you know, the tradition of nonpartisan objectivity in American journalism, and I'm not, uh, and I want to be clear that I don't have a problem with actual objectivity, but the problem with political journalism is that it wants to, it wants two parties that are on, you know, that have policy disputes, but who are basically on the same plane as far as democracy is concerned. And the Republican Party's continued radicalization against democracy is a real challenge for the press because how how do you maintain that necessary neutrality in that kind of circumstance? Um, and I don't, you know, and I think, you know, one way you can, and, and the, the trouble is, is that the only real way to do that is to minimize um, the threat or the level of radicalization against democracy uh, that one of the parties is is going through. Um, you can either do that or you can uh, describe it accurately and be called a partisan and a liberal or a Democrat or, you know, a propagandist. Um, and, and that's a real challenge. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I, I think that it's a, um, I think that things are going to be pretty hard for American journalism going forward, not just financially, but in terms of, um, figuring out how to write this story in a way that informs readers, but also does not soft pedal um, the perils that American democracy is facing. Yeah. And, and you mentioned kind of where you see the story going from here for you. Uh, can you talk about just kind of uh, in the short term, what, what it is that you have your eye on in terms of um, our politics, what, what it is that you're drawn to in the moment? I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm not going to answer that question, but I'm working on some things that I think y'all will find um, edifying. Well, consider this my RSVP. I will, I've already in my mind retweeted and shared whatever it is that you are working on. So uh, I want to thank Adam Serwer, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of The Cruelty is the Point, The Past, The Present, and Future of Trump's America. And we encourage you to pick up your copy of Adam's new book at your local bookstore. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts, please visit commonwealthclub.org. I'm Erin Haynes. Thank you all so much. Take care and have a good night. Thank you so much, Erin. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.